0: Always good to be with you. I'm here most Sundays, and uh, it's good to be up here once in a while, too. So I thank Paul for that and just uh, appreciate uh, your willingness to uh, come and to enjoy the Lord together. So uh, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're doing that, I'm going to begin by just uh, talking to the Lord and asking Him to guide us and to bless us. Lord God, our Father, have mercy on us because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of our sins. Forgive, too, our speaker this morning. His sins are too many to count, but help us to see Christ, just Christ, as through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. A remarkable gift can come in a very unremarkable passage and package. It certainly did some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, did it not? God within the womb of a teenage girl. Divinity sleeping in the hay of a manger. The hope of humanity surrounded by donkeys and sheep. Who would have thought? No one expected God to come the way he did, but the way he came is every bit as important as the fact that he did come. The manger is the message. At least, that's the point of the Apostle Paul in our passage. The Apostle Paul, now, that's an interesting name that really doesn't get mentioned at Christmas time very much, does he? At Christmas, we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, we talk about the Gospel of Luke, the prologue of John, the narrative of Mary and Joseph, the angels, the donkeys and the sheep and the shepherds. We talk about it all. But seldom do we mention Paul, that old Reformed Pharisee. But maybe we should, because his words on the incarnation and exaltation of Christ are as poetic and as beautiful as any that you would ever find. And they're in the book called Philippians. It's called Philippians because it's written to the letter written to the church in Philippi. And in the heart of the letter to the Philippians, we find the heart of the gospel. Beginning in chapter 2 of Philippians, reading just now uh, verses 5, I'll read through 11. I'm going to read uh, New Living Translation this morning. You can find it and follow it, and anyone will be able to tell it together. It says this, "'You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. "'Though he was God, "'he did not think of equality with God "'as something to cling to. "'Instead, he gave up his divine privileges,' He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated or highly exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess or every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the apostle here is not writing a Christmas sermon, not at all. This is far more mundane. He's trying to resolve a conflict between two ladies, one by the name of Euodia, one by the name of Syntyche. Now, their names appear later in the letter. You can find that out. And their names, as you hear, are ancient and strange, but their problem is not... You know what it is? They just can't get along. And so the apostle entreats them. He admonishes them. He tells them to have the same mind, to be of the same mind as Christ Jesus. And as long as he was admonishing them, I guess Paul thought that he was just admonish the whole church because they all probably needed it just as much, just as we do. And consequently, we have this beautiful four-chapter letter written to the church and specifically to these two women, but written to the entire church. And in the heart of the letter is this, the heart of the gospel. As we look at verses 6 through 11, in some of your Bibles you will see they're set off. They're set off as verse in many of our Bibles. Because some historians think it's originally a song. And if that is so, for verses 6 through 11, it may be one of the earliest songs sung in the Christian gatherings. Still, others think, though, and it's uh, that no, it's not a song; it's a liturgy, a liturgy that was cycled among the churches for church gatherings to read out loud on specific days of the of the week and of the month. A common reading is what they would think of it as. And then there are others, and this is the one I like the most. Uh, others think no, the apostle here takes on the the pen of a poet. He was prone to do so, wasn't he? Just look at 1 Corinthians 13. It's such a picture of beautiful poetry. Maybe he was reducing here the entire gospel down to verse, poetic verse to be memorized and passed on from family to family. If so, then the apostle is the gospel's poet laureate. Was it a liturgy? Was it a poem? Was it a song? Hey, we just don't know for sure, but we do know that it's a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel. It starts with a declaration, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, that's the declaration. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. The apostle begins with that declaration. Jesus Christ was in the very nature God. He's talking about Christ prior to Bethlehem, prior to being born into this earth. Jesus had every attribute and every benefit of divinity. He was timeless, he was boundless, and he was limitless. The scriptures say all things were made by him, and through him were all things made. And without him, nothing was made that was made. From heaven's perspective, think about it. Every rock, every tree every star in the sky, the universe itself, everything deserves to have a stamp that says, Made by God. Everything was made by him and through him. He gets credit for it all. He gets credit for the universe. Jesus did that. He gets credit for the sun. Jesus did that. And think about it. Our sun is so enormous, it's one million times the size of the earth. Now, to bring that down to the level of you golfers here in the midst, it's as if the earth was a golf ball. If It's been said that if it was a golf ball, it could fit as many times as a golf ball could fit inside a school bus. The earth would fit into the sun. You see, Jesus did it. He made it all. He simply spoke. He declared by divine fiat, and it happened. Now, the scriptures say what? It says he can tell the stars by name. The scriptures say he can fold up the stars in the sense that pictures like a Bedouin would fold his tent up in the morning. He made it all. He was in very nature God. And this stuns us. It really does stun us if you stop and think about it. But what really rocks our world is not the declaration of verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, if I were God, I think I would rather stay in that situation, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you rather stay God? I mean, think about it. Nobody to boss you around? Nobody to look down on you? You just say something and it happens? Seemingly, you have not a problem in the world. Better yet, make that the universe. No, what really rocks our world is what Christ Jesus did about that. Instead, verse 7, here it comes. Instead, he, speaking of Christ, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. In the NIV, you read, he made himself what? He made himself nothing, it says there. In the ESV, it says he emptied himself, as do some other translations. He made himself nothing. What's that mean? He made himself hungry. He made himself small. He made himself dependent upon legs and larynx and lungs. He made himself dependent upon a mother's milk. He made himself nothing. When he was tired, he was really tired. When he asked, how long must I put up with you? He was really frustrated. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He really wanted an answer. He made himself nothing. He took on a human form. He divested himself for a time of his human nature and took on our our nature He left his divine nature and took on our human nature. He said, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. In other words, he said, I speak only as the Father reveals it to me. He made himself dependent upon the revelation of God. If God did not reveal something to him, then he, like we, is left with no answer. An example of this has to do with the second coming. He said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In other words, Jesus Christ himself did what? He confessed that he did not know. He had divested himself of divine knowledge. The one who knew everything for a time made himself nothing. Did you notice, though? Everything that was involved in Jesus becoming human began with an attitude of submission, a willingness to cooperate with God's plan for salvation. Rather than lobbying for all his right to remain in heaven and continuing to enjoy all the benefits of the exalted role that he had as the second member of the Godhead, rather than do that and to realize that he's the Lord of the created world, he willingly said yes He agreed to cooperate with a plan, a plan that would require his releasing ecstasy and accepting agony. From a state of absolute perfection, from a state of undiminished deity, he willingly came to earth, leaving the angelic hosts who flooded his presence with adoring praise. He unselfishly then accepted a role that would require his what? His being misunderstood, being abused, cursed, and ultimately crucified. He unhesitatingly surrendered the fellowship and protection of the Father's glory for the lonely path of obedience and a torturous death. The apostle says... Jesus did not view his equality with God as something to be grasped. Something to be grasped. Hmm. That's an interesting phrase. It occurs nowhere else in the Bible, in the Greek Bible. It describes Jesus' reluctance to take advantage of his heavenly status. A loose translation might be, he did not throw his weight around when he came down here. He refused to demand special treatment. He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or boasted about. He wanted to be like us. When people mocked him, he did not turn them into stones. When they spat on him, he didn't spit back. When they called him crazy, he did not strike them blind. Just the opposite. He became obedient to death. It says, even death on a cross... He was in nature God. He made himself nothing. He became obedient to death. And if that's not enough, it says even death on a cross. I'm not sure we can fully appreciate, like those Philippian readers could, that statement death on a cross. They lived in the Roman Empire. They understood that death by crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the lowest class of people, the most hardened and despicable of criminals. Crucifixion was regulated only by the morality of the executioner. And if you ever read about the executioners, there wasn't much morality there. The one being crucified was tortured. He was whipped. He was often impaled. He was nailed to a cross, he was stripped naked and left to hang in a public place. Not a private place, but a public place. Why? So fathers could point to him and tell their children, don't grow up like that. He became a public example of what good people do to bad people. Jesus humbled himself from the point of being the one who made creation to being obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. It just can't be stated too often or too clearly. That was God on that cross. It was God who took the nails. It was God who felt the spit. It was God that took the spear. How far would he go? He made himself nothing. He submitted himself even to death, even the death of a cross. Now, You ask yourself, did Christ realize that ahead of time? Of course he did. Was he aware that it would require such an extensive sacrifice? Without question. Did he do it all with a grim face and tight lips? Not at all. How do we know that? You will find the answer tucked away in Hebrews 12.2. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Or in the ESV, it would also say it this way, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at that. He saw those of us who would benefit from his sacrifice as the joy awaiting him. He did this for you. He did this for me. He did not come to us grudgingly or nursing a bitter spirit. He came free of all that. Now, while it's certainly not a pleasurable experience, he accepted his coming among us and is dying for us willingly and unselfishly. But again, why would he do this, we say? Why would he do it when we really look at our heart of hearts? Why would he do that for me? Why would God come down here? Dr. Maxwell Maltz helps us find an example. Maxwell Maltz was a, an internationally prominent cosmetic surgeon, a plastic surgeon in the early days of plastic surgery. And he was in his, uh, the top game of the field from 1930 through 1960. And in one of his writings, he told of a lady who came to him for help. She told him that her husband's face had been burned and badly disfigured when he tried to rescue his parents from a burning house. He failed in his attempt to rescue them, and he assumed that God was rescuing him because he failed, and that's why he had the burns, and that's why he was so grossly disfigured. And he sequestered himself as a result of that. He refused to come out into public. Even when his wife was at home, he retreated to his own room, and she would have to leave his meals at the door because he would not even let her see him. So that wife went to see Dr. Maltz, and the doctor said, Oh, I can help him with the advances of plastic surgery. We can restore his face. She responded, No, that's not what I'm asking. You see, he won't talk to anyone, so I am wondering... Would you so do to me what the fire did to him? Would you so disfigure my face so that when he sees me, he might see a semblance of his, and then he might let me back into his life? Well, the good doctor said, no, he refused to do that. But he did request an opportunity to visit with the man. And upon receiving uh, an acknowledgment of his request, he went to the house, and knocked on the door of the man's house. He detected movement inside the house, but no one answered the door. So then he began to shout to the closed door, I know you're in there. I'm Dr. Maxwell Maltz. I'm a plastic surgeon, and I can restore your face. Still no response. So Dr. Maltz said through the closed door, Your wife came to see me. She wants me to disfigure her face to look like yours so that you might welcome her back into your life. After a few moments, the doorknob turned and the man opened the door a crack. Ultimately, he began to receive treatment and a new chapter of life opened up to him. Why? It was all prompted by the incredible love of one who had wanted to become so like him that he would then turn back to her. God did that for you, my friend. God did that for me. God did that for us. You have hands? He had hands. You have a neck? He took on a neck. You have cranky neighbors? He had cranky neighbors. You have cold winters and hot summers? He felt them all. Why? So that you would know that he knows what it's like to be you. He became like you with the hope that you would trust him and become like him. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Oh, my goodness, no. Look now, verse 9. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Declaration and the Incarnation are intended to lead us to this wonderful exaltation where God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So the one who went low is now made high. He's no longer in a manger. He's no longer on a cross. He's no longer in a tomb. But now he's been made high. God has been raised up. He's been promoted to the highest place. No place is higher than where he is. No place anywhere in all of history, in all of the universe, there's nothing higher than where Christ Jesus is. Jesus outranks every president. Jesus outranks every king, every ruler, every CEO, every superintendent in your job. He outranks us all. Every other throne is but paper mache and doomed to pass. Every other prince is an imposter, but not the throne of Christ and not the prince of peace. God gave him the name that is above every name. You see, names carry clout. If someone to say, Queen Elizabeth is here, we'd all be turning around looking for that 90-year-old monarch to be here. If someone were to say, President George Bush is here. We'd all be looking for either the 41st or the 43rd president. Take your pick. Maybe you'd be looking for both. If you were to have a piece of paper signed by Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, you would put it in a safe place. Why? Because names carry clout. But there's only one name that will cause every knee to bow, and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But there's a problem. There are some people on the planet right now who refuse to bow at the name of Jesus. They mock him. They think the thought of God becoming flesh is absurd. And they renounce their need for a savior, and some even cast expursion on anyone who would believe in Christ. They are self-sufficient. They are independent. They are self-made. They're self-reliant. Ask them to bow a knee before Christ, and they will call you crazy. They'll laugh at you. But hear me today. They will not laugh forever. A day is coming when their knee will bow. The day is coming when your knee will bow and my knee will bow. Some of you, though... I'm going to tell you, quite frankly, some of you might never have bowed your knee to Christ. You never have. Many of you have, but some of you have not. Oh, people don't know it because you look so nice. People don't know it because you're here in church, after all. You pay your bills. You don't hurt people. But the truth of the matter is, you don't worship Christ. You worship your career. You worship your savings account. You worship your reputation. You worship your accomplishments. You worship what you can drive or perhaps what you can eat or what you wear. God bless you, but you are worshiping such a wimpy deity. Such a wimpy deity. I would beg you with all that is within me to worship the one who is worthy of worship, Jesus Christ, the Lord. You're setting yourself up for a disappointment if you don't worship him, because that car is going to wear out. Your reputation is going to disappoint some. And that body that you think is so beautiful sitting here in this room today, listen to me, it's going to get old. Your hair is going to fall out. The belly is going to, to start to get big. And if you worship something like that, something that's going to die, then your joy is going to die as well. God has highly exalted his Son, and he's given him a name that is above every name because Jesus Christ is Lord. That name's the name that implies that he's the Savior of men. God has given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Men and women revile that name today. They use it as mundane blasphemy. Many people have never heard the name of Jesus except as a curse. But at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even the realm of darkness, even the hosts of Satan, even the multitudes of lost souls who have to, shall have to acknowledge that the name of Jesus is supreme. This is the end and goal of God's perfect will and plan. That's where it's all going. For your own sake, worship Jesus Christ. Worship the one who has the name that's above every name. Bow your knee before that one who is the only true king of the universe. You see, all life comes down to this. Worship him now, so that when we all worship him then, we will be glad that we worshiped him first. Because everyone who worships him eventually, everyone will. But those who do so reluctantly on the day of judgment will do so with regret that they didn't worship him earlier while they were here. Worship him. Bend your knee before him. Someday every person will. Every politician will. Every preacher will. Every business person. Every red carpet star even the street corner panhandlers, will all have to acknowledge Christ. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Hitler will confess him. Every terrorist that we know of today will confess Christ. Satan and his demons will have to confess Christ. Everyone will. Every tongue will worship and every knee will bow. Yours will. Mine will. But we don't want to wait until then. The heart of the gospel reminds us to worship him now. So the beautiful message of Paul here is the message of declaration, of incarnation, and exaltation. God became flesh, but now he's been raised to the highest place. You know, every time I study this passage, I'm moved with inexpressible emotion. It breaks me open to deep levels of praise and thankfulness, which I can hardly contain. And it opens me up to a new attitude toward God, toward my life and my relationships. Because here is both motive and the means of the Christian life. I believe that the greatest need of the church in America is to rediscover this basic creed of the early church. Jesus is Lord. The missing ingredients is the will to trust that and obey that. You see, it's possible to rationalize the existence and power of Christ. That's what many people do sitting in our churches. They rationalize that. They say, oh yeah, there's Christ, there's everything about him. It's possible to do that without relationalizing his lordship and experiencing his power. That's why the church is so ineffective in the world today. You see, the commitment of the will unlocks the joy and adventure of following Christ. It means that we seek out his will. It means that we determine his priorities for us. It means that we make the hard choices of faithful obedience for to join with the great company of heaven and on earth to declare and confess openly and openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord is to fulfill our destiny in creation. See, renewal takes place in any church when people who have rejoiced in their Savior are released by their Lord to live their lives before a watching world. This means the discovery of his presence and purpose for every facet of life. The bold new hope of God that is raising up among in our day is made up of people who are excited about their faith because of fresh experiences of the Lord at work in the realities of their lives. When Christ Jesus becomes the intervening, interacting, indwelling Lord of their marriages, Lord of their struggles with identity, Lord of their problems in vocation, Lord of their tensions in relationships, and Lord of their fears of failure, the church is renewed as they trust Him in those situations. So which of these messages did you need to hear today? Did you need to hear that Jesus is Lord? and he became like you so that you can become like him, and that he can redeem you and take you into an eternal home? Or did you know that if he can do that, he can help you face today's problems, whatever you're facing right now? After all, if he can make the universe, don't you think he can make sense out of your life? Go to him. Go to him. You don't have a God who cannot understand you but one who has been tested in every way, just like we are. Yet, he was the only one without sin. So you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Maybe you need to be reminded of the exaltation of Christ. You're such a good person, but you need a king. And you're not a good king for your life, and I'm not a good king for my life. We all need a common king. That's what's going to make heaven heavenly, if you think about it. We will all finally agree as to who runs the world. Why don't you let him run your world today? Oh, and don't underestimate the beauty of a common package, because within a very common package is a very uncommon gift. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, without question, ours is not to ask which religion should we follow, because you know how inadequate they all are. But ours is to listen to what you have said about yourself and to have a relationship with you in Jesus Christ. Give us the gift of faith to make you Lord of our lives. And if I have done it before, I do it now again in complete trust that I belong to you. If I've never done it, make this the day of my true birth. I give myself completely, mind, emotions, and will to you. Thank you for coming to this earth and dying for my sin. And we request, Lord, that you take the words of Scripture this morning and let them sink deep into our hearts. Don't let the devil snatch these words from us during the busyness of our week but we pray that we'll think of them over and over again as we live your life throughout this week. We pray that you would change us by the power of your word and of Jesus Christ within. And thank you for these reminders of your love and of your power. We rejoice and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.